This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we're coming to you from the Latin American Studies Association Annual Congress in Chicago. And as the saying goes, we're back in our wheelhouse discussing elections and economics in Colombia and Mexico, respectively. But first, we go to our studios in Washington, D.C., where Megan Eckhamel has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Secretary of State John Kerry focused on education during his first visit to Mexico this week. Kerry said he wants to increase the number of students studying abroad in each country. Already there are 14,000 Mexicans studying in the United States every year and 4,000 Americans studying here in Mexico. We want both numbers to grow. Officials say the U.S.-Mexico relationship has moved away from focusing almost entirely on security. But Kerry still took the time to congratulate Mexico for the capture of drug lord Chapo Guzman in February. Brazilian civil police went on a one-day strike this week, demanding an 80% pay hike. Brazil's military and federal police are also unhappy with their pay, but they delayed any more strike actions until after the World Cup concludes in July. Military police did strike briefly in Recife last week. Brazil's government denounced the timing of the strike so close to the World Cup soccer championships. The government plans to have at least 20,000 security personnel on hand for the World Cup final in Rio, including using members of the military and military police. This week, football legend Pele expressed his concern about the various protests in his home country of Brazil ahead of the Cup. Pele said he feels the protest may hurt Brazil during the Cup and that travelers may choose to cancel their trips due to security reasons or for agreeing with the protesters. Protests have erupted again in recent weeks against the huge investment in the games. Protesters say the country should have invested in better education or health care. Pele agrees with the sentiments of the protesters, but says they have chosen the wrong time. Pele also expressed concern that all the stadiums may not be complete by the time the competition begins next month. Despite all this, Pele is confident Brazil's team will do well in the Cup. The Dominican Republic passed a law that grants citizenship to Dominican-born immigrant children. The bill comes one year after the High Dominican Court ruled that children of undocumented immigrants were not automatically eligible for Dominican nationality. Critics saw the ruling as discriminatory and racist because the overwhelming majority of immigrants in the Dominican Republic are Haitian. The new law creates categories for people depending on whether they have documentation showing they were born in the Dominican Republic. The government says those who do not have documentation will be allowed to apply for naturalization after two years. The U.S. government is spending money to keep the cost of your morning cup of joe at a more affordable price. This week, the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, 
announced a new $5 million research program to combat coffee rust. Coffee rust, which is a tree fungus, has cost coffee growers more than a billion dollars in the past two years. The blight has hit farmers in Central America the most. That's the region with the highest quality coffee. All that means less coffee and higher prices for consumers. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Ackhamel. Thanks, Megan. This weekend, voters in Colombia go to the polls to elect a president. President Juan Manuel Santos is seeking re-election, but he faces tough competition with four others on the ballot. Former finance minister Oscar Ivan Zuluaga is actually slightly ahead in most polls. If no candidate gets 50% or more in the balloting, Colombia will hold a runoff next month. The campaign has featured plenty of accusations and mudslinging, including the latest accusations that Zuluaga used a hacker to obtain classified information on Colombia's rebel groups. We asked Joseph Tulchin for his analysis of the race. Tulchin is a senior scholar at DC's Woodrow Wilson Center. He is the author or editor of 60 books, mostly on Latin America. We reached him in Mexico City via Skype. It seems to me that um, unless he does something extraordinarily outrageous, sitting President Santos, is going to win the first round. Up until about two months ago, three months ago, uh, most of us expected that he would win outright in this first round. But the events um, and the evolution of public opinion in Colombia over the last few months have pulled him back to the pack, as we might say. And he's confronting some serious opposition and um, probably, but not certainly, will come up with a... um, a lead in the first round and go into the second round. His main challenger, Oscar Ivan Zuluaga, the former finance minister who is the representative of the Democratic Center in this. Um, the latest polls I actually saw coming out of Colombia had him ahead by a point or two. But as we know, polls are um, something to be cautious of when we look at uh, Colombian elections and Latin American elections. I think that's true. And also, um, There's a significant uh, independent vote in Colombia, mainly urban, uh, and that means that the third candidate, Enrique Peñalosa, uh, will, as they say in the horse racing trade, come up fast on the outside. Um, Zuluaga, as as everybody knows, who's interested in Colombia, is the stalking horse for, or the representative of, the Uribe faction in Colombian politics. And that's the sort of um, right-wing party uh, in in there, of which Santos was a member up until he assumed the presidency. So a lot of that, uh, the vote split between Santos and Zuluaga uh, is a, a vote that demonstrates the tension inside the large block of the center, center right parties in Colombia. We need to track some information for those who don't follow Colombia so closely that the former president, Alvaro Uribe, is who you reference there as the leader, really, of the Democratic Center Party. And you also mentioned Enrique Peñalosa, the former mayor of Bogota, who is the leader of the Green Alliance. So I guess he really represents the left in this. Um, He, as you said, Uh, coming up fast, uh, but may end up being the spoiler and keeping this from a 
first round victory from one right. candidate or another. That's right. He may take away. Um, Peñalosa represents, as I indicated, not just the left, but also what um, we would generally call the independent vote in the United States, which is overwhelmingly urban in Bogota. Now, it might be of interest to mention briefly a recent episode in Bogota where uh, Peñalosa's successor, Mr. Petko, uh, was ousted by the um, attorney general or the procurador general of Colombia, uh, who is a ferocious, outspoken opponent of the mayor, of Peñalosa, and of the left in general. There was a scandal that was revealed just within the last week where one of um, the president's key advisors had to leave his campaign because of um, uh, alleged connections to one of the drug gangs there in, in Colombia. Do you think that that's also had an effect on these polls? Uh, somewhat, although I think that's a less, uh, a less has less impact on the polls than other events. Tying Colombian politics to the drug cartels is an easy sport. Um, Mr. Uribe, the former president, lost two of his cabinet members for that very same reason. And um, uh, the, his party, Mr. Zuluaga is their candidate, gets a lot of its support from the countryside. And of course, it's in the countryside that the drug cartels are active. It's in the countryside that the so-called paramilitaries are active. And so contagion from one of those two criminal bands uh, to the political process are more likely to infect the party that Zuluaga represents than they are to infect, say, Mr. Peñalosa, or even to affect Mr. Santos. Although it's clear from the recent scandal that contagion reaches very far when it comes to the criminal bands and the drug cartel in Colombia. Hasn't President Santos pinned a lot of his hopes for re-election on the peace process, those negotiations with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC. Well, for a while, um, the success, or at least the existence of those talks, which are in Havana, as you know, uh, but your listeners may not, uh, brokered by the Cubans uh, and supported by the United States, um, those talks have proceeded slower than Mr. Santos would like. The vast majority of Colombians want to sign a peace treaty with the FARC. One of the activities, of course, um, that's extremely interesting to followers of Colombia is that the FARC and their junior partners, the ELN, the Army of National Liberation, have increased their attacks on oil ducks, oil um, uh, ducks and refinery. There have been 240 such episodes uh, in the last year, which has curtailed the production of petroleum uh, in Colombia by nearly 10% in the year. Now, that's very serious. So the peace talks are important. The absence of movement in the peace talks is giving support to Santos's opponents. And we would hope there's nothing rash occurs. But the peace talks are truly significant. In, it's been 50 years of guerrilla activity in Colombia. It's hard to imagine if you think, if your listeners uh, just imagine, if they're all United States people, uh, people in the United States, just ask them to imagine 25% of the national territory 
under the control of an opposition armed group. And I'm not being facetious. I don't mean the Tea Party or Texans walking around. We're talking about a guerrilla group that wants to overthrow the system of government and has been in effect on Colombian territory for 50 years. And, and most of that territory that you speak of is controlled by the FARC, uh, not necessarily by the, um, the ELN, the Army of National Liberation. Right. They're, they're, they're minor players in the current act of the drama. The overwhelming decision-making and the overwhelming political activity is the FARC. Now, connected to the peace talks, the most important single issue at the peace talks is the restitution of land to the Colombians, almost entirely relatively poor smallholders in the countryside, the restitution of land to the three million Colombians now in internal exile in migrant camps elsewhere. And that's the most sensitive political issue of all. And this is what started the war, did it not? Uh, no, it's the result of the denouement of the war. The paramilitaries are created in the 1980s by the military themselves because they're so unsuccessful in dealing with the FARC. So they create unbound, unrestricted armed groups, whom we, which we call milit uh, paramilitaries. They're called in the uh, Spanish, they're called groups of united citizens and so on. They have different names. But it was a monster. The military created a monster so that when under Plan Colombia in the 1990s, the United States provided the resources to the Colombian government to fight its own war uh, and fairly successful, reducing the control of the FARC by about half, they had created these tens of thousands of armed, trained, semi-militarized people out there in the countryside who didn't want to give up their arms, who didn't want to return to politics, and they kept throwing off the land smallholders and um, workers, campesinos, so that Colombia now has to deal with three million evacuated refugees. It's a huge social and juridical problem. And they have begun the process. Santos gets credit for it. Uribe did not. Uribe sided with the paramilitaries. Santos did not, does not and has begun the process of social and juridical healing. But it's an extraordinary task. There are three million people off their land. I suppose what I meant by that original question was that land and land reform were the cause of this particular conflict. Uh, um, and obviously, yes, now three million refugees are also a result, along with some would say 200,000 casualties. Exactly. No, this, you're absolutely correct. Land reform, the definition of which or the substance of which has changed over the 50 years, land reform considered, continues to be the principal item of substance in the peace talks. Now, one of the things that's politically sensitive, though less significant in my view than land reform, is the reintegration of armed guerrillas into civil unarmed political activity. Some of the guerrillas, without question, nobody knows exactly who or how many, but some without question, have become involved in drug trafficking. Furthermore, over the years, they've also been involved in what the civilian juridical system has to call criminal activity. They kidnap and they kill. 
and they extort money from people who they've, for people they've kidnapped. So they've engaged in activity which is criminal under any juridical system or any state of rule of law. And the question is, what do you do with people whom you have evidence to indicate that they're murderers or kidnappers or extortionists, and now they call themselves social reformers, legitimate social reformers with all civil and human rights, and they want to return to political activity. The drug trafficking in Colombia is going, is diminishing, not as quickly as we would like, not as quickly as the Mexicans would like, but it is, in fact, um, slowly diminishing. And we can expect over the next 10 years that the Colombian economy will begin to take on a more healthy tone, uh, whereas up until 10 years ago, illegal activity represented somewhere between 7 and 10 percent of the country's gross national product. So we're expecting to find a new Colombia emerging slowly. And the real question is, who will be leading that new Colombia? Well, Mr. Santos would like to. Uh, Mr. Zuluaga will take us back, clearly take us backward in, in time, which is an, un, uh, an, an what do you, how shall we say it, uh, a solution that cannot be sustained. Thank you so much. Joseph S. Tolchin, senior scholar at the Wilson Center in Washington, D.C., joining us today on Latin Pulse via Skype from Mexico City. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. And now a postscript. The FARC and the Colombian government announced some resolution in the peace talks in regards to drug trafficking during the past week, just before we conducted this interview. Up next, criticizing NAFTA after 20 years. Stay with us. For indigenous communities, the right to free, prior, and informed consent is supported by Article 10 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which states that governments may not forcibly displace indigenous communities from their lands or territories, nor carry out any contracted project on indigenous people's lands without their free, prior, and informed consent. For more information, visit culturalsurvival.org consent. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This year, the North American Free Trade Agreement, often called NAFTA, turns 20 years old. This free trade pact and treaty that attempts an integration of Canada, the United States, and Mexico generally receives high marks among policymakers in Washington. But the Center for Economic and Policy Research takes an alternative view. That think tank recently released a highly critical review of NAFTA. We spoke to one of the authors, Mark Weisbrot, here at the Latin American Studies Congress. And just a note, you may hear some of Chicago's traffic or its famous elevated train system, the L, in the background. Well, Mexico's been done very uh, badly uh, since that uh, treaty went into effect uh, 20 years ago. Um, So, uh, for example, um, their growth uh, over that whole period of income per person is less than 1% a year, as a total of 18.6% uh, for the period, for the 20 years. That's about half uh, the rate of growth uh, achieved by the rest of Latin America. And, uh, you know, by any really measure, any, you can compare it with Mexico's past as well. For example, from 1960 to 1980, when the economy was doing reasonably well, uh, it, income per person doubled. Uh, it grew by 98 to 99 percent in a 20-year period. So uh, this is vastly different from what they did in the past. 
And uh, if you look at poverty, uh, the poverty rate in, in 2012 was 52%, 52.3%, .3 .3 almost exactly the same as it was in, in 1994. So any really measure that you'd want to use, uh, they did very badly. And they did badly all the way into the 2000s when, you know, the rest of the Latin America, most of the rest of the region uh, recovered from this long uh, period of economic failure uh, of the prior, you know, for, of the 1980 to 2000 period. Why do you think that this, that this treaty is trumpeted as a, as a success, both in Mexico City and in Washington? Well, that's a good question. I think <laughs> you'd have to ask the people who try to sell it that way. I suppose they have different reasons. You well, know, I mean, for instance, you see President Obama, when he was campaigning in 2008, was a critic of NAFTA. Now he's president. He seems to be supportive. Yes. Well, it, it was a U.S. creation. I mean, President Clinton fought very hard. He spent his uh, first uh, uh, year in office uh, in 93, most of his time campaigning for that. And he couldn't even still get a majority of his own party to vote for it. But he got it through the Congress with Republican uh, support. And, uh, you know, they tried to sell it here as something that would create jobs here. And of course, that didn't work out at all. Um, but Did those jobs go to Mexico? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt that a, a lot of them did. But then Mexico wasn't able to keep them because. Uh, uh, China, you know, competition with China uh, came in, especially after China joined the, uh, the WTO. And, and so uh, Mexico ended up with a, a very bad deal. You talk in your report a little bit about unemployment. The official Mexican unemployment rate right now is 5%. Um, you're not alone in criticizing the Mexicans for how they measure unemployment. You mentioned before poverty rate in Mexico stands at more than half of the population, yet 5% unemployment. How, how does those figures come about, and how, do, how, do, how does NAFTA have any effect on the unemployment in Mexico? Well, unemployment in Mexico, um, you know, that low rate that you see, first of all, it's high relative to what it was in the past, you know, so you do see an increase in unemployment, even measured at 5%, you know, you had 2 to 3 on unemployment, uh, you know, prior to NAFTA. And uh, what you're really looking at is when you look at that unemployment rate, it's counting anybody who worked like an hour in the last uh, week uh, as uh, employed. And so, you know, you have very little social safety net there. So uh, really, uh, almost everybody has to do something uh, to survive. And that's that's really what you're, that's why that unemployment rate is uh, unrealistically low. But it's not uh, fake or anything. I mean, and so the movement in the unemployment rate is real, and you do see unemployment getting worse. And you did have about 2 million people displaced from agriculture uh, uh, during the NAFTA period as a result of the, uh, you know, subsidized corn and other goods that came in from the United States. That was another terrible thing for them. So was it mainly corn and maize farmers who were affected by yes, NAFTA? Yeah. And, that was and the biggest group, and what as far we, as we can tell. What do we see as the effects on, on them? Did they shift to other crops? What happened to them economically? Well, uh, as I said, uh, two million of them uh, were displaced. Now, uh, some of them, that was the net displacement. Now, you had some 
that got jobs in the um, agro-export sector, which is what everybody said was going to happen. You know, everyone knew that if you let in corn from the United States, you know, you're going to wipe out uh, farmers in Mexico. But they said that they would get jobs um, in the uh, in the export sector, and uh, some of them did. Um, but uh, there were about five million displaced between 1991 and 2007, according to Mexican uh, uh, data. And uh, these were family farmers. And about uh, three million of them got seasonal labor jobs in the acro export, and, and the, the net loss was about two million. Is this one of the areas that fuels emigration out of Mexico? Absolutely. You know, here's another way you're looking at it most people don't understand because they're not looking at it in terms of living standards, but, and they don't realize that this is a possible counterfactual. But look at what happened in Mexico. Look at their growth from 1960 to 1980. As I said, the income per person doubled. Now, uh, that wasn't all that, I mean, that was good growth, but it wasn't like South Korea, for example, but it was good. Now, imagine that, that just that had continued to today, instead of this terrible nightmare that they went through uh, since 1980. Because NAFTA is kind of continuation of the neoliberal policies of the 80s. Just take that whole period. Imagine that Mexico didn't go through all these policy changes that were recommended from Washington and the IMF and so on. And that they had managed to just keep growing the way they did, the way the South Koreans or they did in Taiwan. They would be, uh, they would have a standard of living uh, kind of like uh, Southern Europe today. And who would be coming across the border? I mean, and risking, you know, all the risks that you take coming to the United States. Nobody, practically. So that's the real, uh, I mean, that's one of the ways of looking at the cost of this huge long-term economic failure. And yes, people say, oh, well, they couldn't keep growing. Yes, they could. I mean, other countries did. And uh, that's, that was the possibility of Mexico uh, 30, uh, you know, 30 years ago, 34 years ago. With the Great Recession here, we certainly saw that emigration rates slow down and at some point stop. But now we hear all this talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, uh, as another way that to lift Mexico out of economic doldrums. Um, do you have some thoughts on that? I don't see it's how it's going to help them any more than NAFTA did. And of course it has some of these, you know, kind of nasty provisions in there, things that make, uh, for example, would make drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals more expensive, um, and other conditions that are not good for you know any of the signatories, including Mexico, which, for instance, uh, well, Mexico already has this under NAFTA, but it would extend it to more countries, basically the right of corporations to sue the government uh, directly, which they can't do under the WTO for anything that infringes on their profits. So I don't see where it's really going to, how it could really help Mexico. Since NAFTA, you've seen this big growth in millionaires, billionaires that get on the world lists. So by looking at that, some people would say it's been a success. Well, it certainly has. <laughs> I mean, Carlos uh, Slim, you know. Richest or second richest man in the world. Yeah, and if you look at the size of the increase in his uh, fortune, it's actually large enough to make a difference in the overall distribution of income of the country. So your point would be 
It's not equal. No, it's terribly unequal, and uh, it's you know it just shows you the cost of bad policy. Thank you so much. Sure, thank you. Mark Weisbrot of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. From the annual LASA Congress in Chicago, thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel, writer Alyssa Pacheco, and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>